If you're like most of us these days, a financial pension is not in the cards, but today's guest says not to worry. Heather McGowan has some different ideas about how to have a great future at work. Welcome to Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, and I'm with our producer, Rebecca Charbowski. Hi, Chris. Hi, Rebecca. Chris, as you mentioned, our guest today is Heather McGowan. Heather's a future of work strategist and author. Her new book was just released. It's called The Empathy Advantage, Leading the Empowered Workforce. Interesting stuff. It is. And she also says that there are five elements that make up what she calls the great reset, Mm. which I think is really interesting. And she's going to share those with us along with why she says that learning is the new pension. And then after our conversation with Heather, Noga Lasser is going to join us, and Noga's a design director at Steelcase, and she's going to help us connect some of Heather's ideas with design ideas for creating a better workplace. We're going to ask anybody who likes this podcast if they'd rate and review it, because that's going to help other people find it. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. Heather, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So, Heather, one of the things that I feel like you're so good at is taking a complex idea and making it more easy to digest and understand and and connecting dots. So one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot, which is kind of a complex idea, is about this contract between employers and employees and how that has changed a lot. And in your new book, you, you broke it down into like five elements. I found that really helpful. I was wondering if you could talk about those kind of five things that are happening that are converging. Sure. So the one that's gotten the best um, marketing presence would be the Great Resignation. Sure. I think that that is an element of five greats. So the Great Resignation is people quitting their jobs, people changing jobs. And it's a phenomenon that's sort of been pegged as a 2021 to 2022 and potentially 2023 thing. Um, but in reality, churn has been building since 2009. It's mm. been an increase in turnover in organizations. There's no longer the pressure to stay with an organization for 5, 10, or 20 years. You can do right. two or three years there and change. So talent is mobile. We have to get used to it. Gardner thinks we're going to be up about 20%. And with the recent rise in tech layoffs, there's an increased chance that that'll further push up the churn. Because when you start sure. to leave, you're more likely to leave yourself. So that's one piece of it. Um, there's also the great retirement. We have not paid attention at all to the fact that we have a lot of boomers and they're starting to retire. Then there's the great reshuffle. That's people leaving their jobs um, to go to a different industry. And that uh, between 2021, 2022, more than 50% of people who left their jobs went into a new role or new industry. And there's some good news there because I think that means that people are reskilling and working to their potential and working where they want to work. So that's a good thing. There's a great refusal. That's where Mm. people say, you know, I'm not going to work under these conditions anymore, particularly low-wage conditions where we've been underpaying people for decades. And there's the great relocation. Upwork estimates is about 19, 20 million Americans alone who are looking to move where they live for their life purposes. And they're doing it because of availability of remote work or hybrid work or just availability of work in general. Collectively, Mm -hmm. that gives you the great reset. And what mm-hmm. I say is it's not about where work takes place. It's about where work fits in our lives. Um, that is really helpful, just that whole framework. If you summed it up, like in terms of this contract, if you will, that we've had, uh, whether they're actual real contracts or just 
you know, kind of implied contracts. Yeah. Like if you summed it up, how do you think that's changed? It's it's that people are not feeling like they're committed to the organization for long stretches of time? Well, we originally traded security for loyalty. So I mm-hmm. will stay with your organization my entire career. I will give you all my loyalty, but you'll give me the security that you're never going to change that relationship on me. That's long gone. Right. And then we started trading, you know, share of mind for a career path. So mm-hmm. we could advance within an organization, even if things changed, if we gave them the share of our attention. And then that started to erode. So it's sort of like we went from careers to jobs to gigs almost, even if you were within an organization. So when that social contract frayed, employees were like, you know what? You don't get my loyalty anymore. Right. I think the existential crisis of the pandemic, when we felt the fragility of life, we're like, is this really what I'm doing with my life? So I think what we're having is a changed relationship between individuals and organizations. I think it's a huge opportunity to humanize work. I love that. Okay, so the, the other thing that you've said that really stuck with me is an idea that learning is the new pension. I don't even know if people know what pensions are anymore. I'm, <laughs> I was talking with my son about his career. I, I don't know that that's a, a Gen Z terminology, but this idea that learning's a new pension. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, so I came up with that. I just came up with that in a riff when I was on stage once in Paris. You know, mm-hmm. they have pensions, and then I started using it in Australia, mm-hmm. and I call it a superannuation. But then I sat down and calculated at the time, and this was like 2018, I said, you know what, okay, if we work every day, for, you take every dollar you work for every day, some percentage of that you're putting away for the future in a retirement mm-hmm. 401k, what have you. And it's something on the neighborhood of 15%. And then I looked at IBM's prediction on what it would take to change the skills gap. So in 2014, I think it was three days, 2018 or 19, it became 36 days. Now it's grown since then. And if you count up the number of hours you work, the number of days you need to put into retraining, it actually worked out then, now I think it's even greater than that, that you're spending a certain percentage of your time building your future value, whether it's the Mm -hmm. dollar you put away or the learning you you do to make yourself more valuable. So Mm -hmm. it became even more more of a true thing. So if you just continue to dine out on the skills you had yesterday, you're going to be irrelevant tomorrow. But if you spend a certain percentage of your time focused on how do I become even more valuable in the future, which is not unlike a pension, um, it's interesting enough, Pew's research um, of people leaving jobs between 2020 and 2021, turns out same top five list pretty much exists today in 2023. Number one, of course, is compensation. Sure. But tied with number one in the sort of their net score between first and second choice was career mobility and advancement. So people are starting mm-hmm. to see if there aren't learning opportunities here, I'm not becoming more valuable, and that may be as important as what you pay me. In terms of our individual development, you know, one of the things that has been such a big topic of conversation that I just got to ask your opinion on this is chat GBT. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think that kind of AI is going to do to interrupt our learning? Like, do I need to learn or do I just need a really great chatbot that can help me figure it out? I think the tool is only as good as the human that uses it. So okay. I think we should think about it not as automation, but augmentation. Uh-huh. I have played around with it. I, I do think it's compelling and very helpful. So I think it's going to be as helpful as all the other tools we've adapted to. I mean, you ask, you take somebody's phone, you say, can I have your phone and wipe out your contact list? 
people, no one would say yes because we can't remember right. a single phone number. But we've already outsourced that. So we right. adapt to outsourcing over time and we will adapt to whatever this presents in our lives as just another augmentation. So when we think about like all these ways that we're talking about how work is changing and how we need to uh, learn and adapt, um, it feels like we're in this really fluid time in terms of um, the adoption of hybrid work or the interpretation of hybrid work. Like it's being implemented in so many different ways around the world, in different countries, different uh, companies, et cetera. And I'm just curious what you think about what the advent of hybrid work is really going to mean in terms of how, you know, people are developing their skills and back to this whole idea of the employer-employee contract. I think the honest answer is we don't know yet. And if you're like me, I'm not that old, but I'm 51. If you remember the first time you went on the internet and you searched for something and the answers you got were just a pile of junk, Mm-hmm. Or the first time you tried to use a, an e-commerce site and it was just this jumble of links and it was hard to navigate. That's kind of where we are, I think, with hybrid or remote work. We went through about a thousand days of a forced social experiment called the pandemic, right. in which we found out what we're capable of. And we use tools that have been around for a very long time. Zoom is 10 years old. Mm-hmm. So McKinsey said we leapt forward five years in our digital transformation in those first 60 days. Why? Because we just started using the tools that are around us. So I think when it comes to hybrid or remote work, we are in our infancy. Mm -hmm. We don't know yet what works best and where. We have a lot of biases and opinions, um, but I think we need a lot of experimentation, a lot of improvement in tools, and a lot of human adaptation, Not both about how we work and how we organize work and manage and lead folks, whether we're with them or we're digitally connected. Yeah. You know, we we feel like we're seeing whether I use the word tension or a little bit of a kind of tug and war back and forth navigation going on, particularly in like the U.S. and Canada. Like globally, a lot of companies are back in the office full-time most of the time. They've got kind of what I'd call very light hybrid. In the U.S. and Canada, it's a lot more robust right now. Um, and a lot more of the experimentation that you're talking about kind of going on. And what I'm curious about is if you think as people are trying to navigate what their expectations are around hybrid work, like do you feel like people really have a good sense of what they actually want? Like what do they want from this whole experience? Well, it depends on who you're talking about. So I think the workforce, the people who are resisting a return to office, Mm-hmm. In 2019, they had their professional life and they had their personal life. And their professional life often eclipsed their personal life. It often came first. Mm-hmm. Their personal life was the only area over which they had agency over their time. And what happened over those thousand days is we merged our personal and professional lives. Right. We had agency over both. And what a return to the office is, it's not about the place. It's about the loss of agency over our time. And I think what people want is some sense of control and ownership over what is our only non-renewable resource, which is our time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think many of our managers and leaders grew up in an era where they put their time in the office. They sacrificed. They're not comfortable when people are not with them. Um, we don't have great ways to really understand what people do in work. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting thing that happened in uh, the beginning, the first six months of the pandemic, Microsoft study found that it was boomers who were least comfortable right. and Gen Z were the most comfortable, you know, go forward another six months or a year. And it was Gen Z that was dying to get back into the office because at the start of their career, they wanted more in-person relationships. They wanted more uh, serendipitous networking. They wanted to build their network in person and boomers got really comfortable and they're like, Hey, this is pretty great. I got a house in Santa Fe. I'm living here now. You know, I don't want to give up the agency I now have over my time and the freedom to live where I want to. So I think that it's, it's been an evolving process and the the big answer is we don't know yet, but I think there are different constituents with different desires. You know, we just got some data back in our research, which showed exactly what you just talked about, Heather, that Gen Z is coming into the office at a much higher rate than any other generation, um, and the baby boomers at the lowest level. I mean, they're still coming in a, a fair amount, but there's definitely a generational difference going on there. So, like, one of the things I worry about, which is one of the reasons why I come into the office four days a week, most weeks, is who's going to mentor Gen Z, <laughs> if all if all the Gen X and the baby boomers decide they're going to stay home, like how are the younger generation of workers going to get development? Agree. You work with so many different companies around the country, around the world, and so I'm just curious if there's companies that you would point to that you go, you know, they're they're doing something right here. They're learning. They're creating some of those good experiments. Do you have a sense of that? Um, yes, this is not, I've done talks with them, but this is not one that I've worked with closely, but I am encouraged by the, uh, the statements by the CEO of uh, City, who said, for people who are not doing well by our measures, whatever they are, so they have some productivity measures, working from home, we are going to call them back in the office. But what they said is, it's not to penalize them, we're going to call them back in the office so we can coach and champion them to uh, how we need them to work, what our expectations are, so that they can be successful if they want to return to remote or hybrid work. Mm-hmm. I think that's a much more positive sign than declarations and demands. That's mm-hmm. listening. We have our needs, and there are expectations, and there are accountability, 100%. And people aren't meeting them. We need to bring them back into the environment coaching and championing them so they can meet them. I mean, I'm encouraged by those kinds of things. Another one, um, this one I have never worked with, but I, I read about Cockroach Labs, which I thought at the time was mm-hmm. a terrible name for a company. I, <laughs> I agree. They're in the data business. So what's going to happen in, in, you know, after the, the uh, Armageddon is the cockroaches will be here with my data. That's a very <laughs> name for a company. Um, but they set forth uh, a policy that said, tell us where you want to work. Home, hybrid, office. If you work at home, we'll help you give you a budget to get set up. If you want to work hybrid, we can give you like a hot desk, but we can't give you a dedicated space. If you want to work in the office, we will give you a dedicated space. We will have equal learning opportunities and advancement opportunities for everybody. We will have pathways. Your preference is what we want to support. Your success is what we want to support. That's a very positive message to me. Um, I think the folks who are listening in this this is why we named our book The Empathy Advantage, are the ones who were advantaged in leading the empowered workforce, is trying to understand what they want and how it helped them be most successful in the workforce. Mm -hmm. So another thing that you've talked about that I'd love to explore a little bit is this idea of collective intelligence versus kind of individual intelligence. And I think this issue of thinking about whether we're part of a collective or part of a group is at play during this whole hybrid work experience. 
And I'm just curious what you're talking about, what you're thinking about in terms of collective versus individual intelligence. So I discovered this probably more than 10 years ago. I was doing some work for a biotech company uh, as a consultant, and I was talking to their head of HR. And the company is so technical that, with the exception of me, who's came, you know, a few folks like me who came in as consultants, most of the people there have a doctorate at minimum because mm-hmm. it's highly technical. So when you have a group of people who have doctorates, they are trained in some very specific expertise. They're basically trained to be unquestioned experts. They are the experts in their mm-hmm. uh, very clear niche of knowledge. They discovered that that actually became a problem because this particular company provided products and services for a complex disease state, a chronic disease. And they said, we need people who can see the chronic disease holistically in order to develop the products and services we need. We need them to empathize with the user and see it, whatever the solution is, as part of a system, because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Problem is, is that our experts tend to see it through the lens of only their expertise. So what they started to do was to get above, I think it was like some manager level, you had to be screened and you had to go through training. If you were over-reliant on your expertise, you were less likely to experiment. You were less likely to see things holistically. And that's when I was like, uh-huh, something is going on here in this particular space. Mm-hmm. And then as I went on and worked for more industries for another decade or so, and then started speaking more internationally, I started asking every single audience starting in about this 2018, by a show of hands, how many of you have people reporting to you have skills and knowledge you don't have? Almost every day, the number of hands that went up increased. Yep. And it made sense. And now I say to folks, if you don't have your hand up, you're either not managing people or you're not honest. Right. Because you cannot be an expert in cybersecurity, machine learning, data analytics, or even just the baseline of the plethora of skills and knowledge that are necessary to run any group today. Yeah. So that means that we've, we've brought these people along as leaders, promising them that they could be this unquestioned expert. And now we need them to defer to the team because yeah. a lot of times the team has skills and knowledge they don't have. Also, the team members have unique skills and knowledge. They don't have redundant skills and knowledge. So you can't create an environment, as I say, um, peers as competitors have to move to peers as collaborators. Mm-hmm. So first rankings and all this stuff, which were never a good idea, are really a terrible idea. So now you need to create an environment of supportive collaboration where you've got a humble, curious learner who's comfortable saying, I don't know, as your leader. Right. I, I don't know what I would do if I had to like bear the pressure of knowing everything that my team knows. You know, It's like I can't possibly maintain all of that in my mind, but fortunately, I've got a bunch of people who are really smart and capable that I can draw on. So that's good advice. Um, Again, I kind of want to circle back to the conversation we were having a little bit about, you know, hybrid work. And there, there does seem to be, again, a tension, if you will, that arises. More people are distributed, spending less time together. Like, w- what thoughts do you have about it when people are spending less time together? If we're trying to create collective intelligence, for example, how do we do that in our current environment? Um, I think we have to acknowledge our biases first and foremost. So one of the ways I ask people, as I say, you know, by a show of hands if I'm in an audience or I'm having a conversation with people and, or I share the data, if you were under a certain age, chances are good you met your spouse or partner online. Mm-hmm. And you didn't just meet them online and then immediately meet them in person. You often had many conversations with them 
created an emotionally vulnerable and, and intimate connection before you ever met them in person. Mm-hmm. And there's, the stats are somewhere 40, 50% of heterosexual people and 80 plus percent of LGBTQ plus community meets all. Mm-hmm. That says to me, we can form social capital virtually. Mm-hmm. So it's just how we do it and how we harness it. I, my greatest learning community is probably LinkedIn. So that's a place to connect to me, follow with me, talk with me. People mm-hmm. post articles about what they're reading. There's a number of people all over the world. Some I've met in person, some I've never met in person, who I talk to every single day. And I know their whole life story and I may have never met them. I feel very connected to them. If something happens in their life, I'd send them flowers. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible. Um, I don't know that it's for everybody. I don't know that it's optimal, but I don't want to just assume we cannot do it because I think there's some evidence that we can do it. Mm-hmm. And we do need better tools. And I think we're getting better tools. I mean, Zoom was a huge leap forward. I mean, remember what you'd have to do to go to a doctor for something really silly? Mm-hmm. You'd drive somewhere, park, wait in an office to see someone for five minutes who could see just as easily over Zoom the rash on your arm and prescribe something. That gave us a lot of our lives back on, on both ends. Some types of education, some types of meetings where you don't have to take all that time. So I think there's an opportunity here. We do have to drop our biases. We do have to be intentional about it. There are some things that work better in person, but there's quite a bit we can do digitally that I think we haven't given ourselves credit for. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think there's a balance that we need as human beings. Like one of the things that I discovered when I was working away from the office for a long period of time, like I went through kind of this initial, like literal anxiety to walk back in the door. But then once I did, like I saw somebody that I would have never thought to set up a structured meeting with her but I was just so happy to see her. And I, you know, we chatted for a while and, you know, she gave me some advice. And it it struck me how important it was to me to have those kind of casual interactions with people that I don't set up a meeting with and I don't interact with in LinkedIn or something like that. But I feel the importance of their presence in my day. You know, the people I chat with in the cafeteria or the woman who makes my tea, you know, those kinds of relationships feel like those are important too. hundred percent. Humans run on connection. I don't want to diminish that. I Mm -hmm. saw something about a grocery store the other day that put in slow lanes. There's a slow lane where you can have a conversation with somebody as they're checking you out. And a lot of people are are choosing that connection. You know, I speak for a living. That's my primary, you know, vehicle. And for more than a year, I I did nothing but Zoom and Teams. Now people are dying to get back out there. So I am road warrior again. I got in at one o'clock in the morning last night from a series of events across the country. And I got to tell you, it's a different energy. When I'm on stage, I love that energy. I love interacting with people. But then there are some days where I'm like, you know what? I really would love to have dinner with my family and see some of my friends. So it was kind of great. So it's a mix. And I think we'll figure it out. I think for honest, we need some uh, intentional. And then when it comes to the workplace, we need to rethink what that is in our lives. Because the idea of making people go in the office three days a week to sit on Zoom is really depleting our energy. Yeah. So what is it we do when we come together? How do we um, encourage more of those serendipitous collaborations or running into people? I know the buildings have been designed where bathrooms are in a certain place and the coffee pot has been moved so that people run into each other. We have to think so much more intentionally about that. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you on that. You know, it's everybody talks about how the pandemic has accelerated all of these things, just like you talked about that Zoom had been around and then suddenly we started using it. So when I think about, you know, the kind of digital transformation, if you will, that's taken place, what do you think that means in terms of skill gaps or, you know, like finding the right talent? Can you talk a little bit about that? First and foremost, I think digital transformation is simply human transformation. We don't get digital transformation and then humans tell us humans start adopting and using the tools. Mm-hmm. So that's why we leapt forward uh, in the early days of the pandemic because we started using tools that are around us. That's why some really smart uh, companies have made their CHRO and their CTO or CIO, however they're structured, inextricably linked because it's mm-hmm. the human and the tools and they have to work together. Uh, when it comes to a skills gap, I think we're completely wrong about this. I think a skills gap is actually kind of a good thing. Mm. A skills gap forms when a human demonstrates a skill and a market values that skill in excess of supply. That's actually progress. Mm -hmm. So if we presume that learning is part of work, we will be constantly chasing a skills gap that hopefully will never close. If we close it, we've stopped making progress. So we need to make learning part of work. And if you think about how you, you know, I spent more than a decade in higher ed. So if you say, okay, here's a new skill out there that we need and we need an undergraduate curriculum for it, for example, it takes about 10 years. So it takes a couple of years to build the curriculum. It takes four, five, sometimes six years to get people through the curriculum Mm -hmm. and they're out in the workforce. So a decade to a deployable workforce is way too long. Now you can compress it to five or two years or what have you if you do it through boot camps. But if we start assuming learning and certain types of learning are part of work and educate people with foundational skills, fundamental literacy, so they are ready to learn, ready with the baseline understanding of things and some set of entry-level skills that are expected to, uh, particularly technical skills, expected to be perishable, and we really lean into the durable skills, which are the uniquely human skills, we'll have a workforce that, the, and we set that expectation. Like when you, if you do an undergrad, if you finish your undergraduate, your training program, whatever it is, that is not the end of the race, that's the beginning of the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before I let you go, I just want to circle back to you got a new book coming out, The Empathy Advantage. Why empathy? Why did that title emerge? And what's so important about empathy right now? Well, because I think the workforce is empowered and will continue to be even if we have an economic recession and we have those rapidly emerging skills and knowledge, the leadership profile has to change. So we can't have that unquestioned expert who leads with domination. We need we basically have to make four fundamental shifts to leadership. From a mindset perspective, you're not managing people or process anymore. You're enabling their success. Okay. They used to work for you, now you work for them. Their success is your success. From mm-hmm. a cultural standpoint, from peers as competitors, we would pit people against each other. They have unique knowledge. You need them to need each other and you need to orchestrate it. So it's peers as collaborators. From an approach standpoint, we used to be able to get people to learn and adapt with simply extrinsic motivation. Now we need to do intrinsic motivation. So move away from that extrinsic pressure. We cannot get people to learn and adapt at the speed, scale, and scope we're going to need through punishments, threats, or rewards. Simply won't work. Mm -hmm. And then from a behavioral standpoint, we used to encourage kind of a myopic focus on driving productivity with domination and even sometimes fear and sometimes even humiliation, that won't work anymore. 
Now we need that un, that person who's a humble, curious learner who can create effectiveness through inspiration, avoid burnout, and unleash the potential in their teams. All of that really leans into empathy. I think that is so helpful. I'm just going to recommend to everybody that you hit your rewind button a few times and re-listen to what Heather just said, because I think it's really important for any of us who are leading people or who hope to lead people, you know, in the current environment that we're working in and moving forward. So Heather, thanks so much for being with us today. This has been a great conversation and I have really enjoyed it and I've learned a lot. So I've contributed to my pension. So thank you. There you go. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I wanted to talk to my colleague, Noga Lasser, and she is Director of Design at Steelcase based in Munich. Thanks, Noga, for joining us today. Yeah, Chris, it's really nice to be here. I really wanted to get your take on some of the things that Heather had to say, and particularly this idea about learning is the new pension. Like that really, really struck me. You know, we've seen other data out there that says that if people aren't learning, they've those are some of the things where they might leave, and we certainly don't want that to happen if we can avoid it. And so I'm curious, you know, a lot of people think about learning in a very formal way, and we do need to have classrooms in those kinds of spaces. But are there other ways from a design perspective that you would try and foster learning within the work environment? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Um, I have to say that point really resonated with me. And it kind of brought me back to also thinking about how Heather was talking about the slow lanes in in supermarkets, which I found super interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I would say we try to do something like that in our spaces as well, quite intentionally. So, you know, Heather was talking about intentionally locating kitchenettes or bathrooms so people bump into each other. And of course, we strategically have um, these great work cafes in all of our spaces. Um, And those do a really great job of bringing people together. But one of the things that we've found quite recently working on on a large project in the Munich Link is that we also have these teams that are what we call, you know, these communal attractors that people are quite intentionally going to. So teams, for example, like marketing that need to collaborate really with all of our different teams across the board, people are coming to their space to have, you know, these work-related conversations. And then when somebody else is coming by to have a conversation with someone else in marketing, suddenly that conversation is, you know, this great opportunity for exactly what you're, you're talking about, right? Like that informal mm-hmm. learning, like, hey, I didn't know you were you were working on that, or hey, that's a completely new topic for me. And what we found is that those conversations are kind of more deeply um, effective in business-related learning than perhaps the more casual work cafe encounters where you might ask about family, right? Right, right. So that's been something quite new that we've just we've just kind of highlighted recently. And how is that different from designing a typical marketing department, you know, the way we might have in the past? <laughs> That's a really great question. I don't know what a typical marketing department would even look like. Um, 
<laughs> <laughs> I know. I guess they do vary, but I guess any department. How is it different, you know, from the way we might have designed for teams in the past? So a few things that we're doing. So first of all, is the location of the team uh, within the larger community. So how do you place them in a space that kind of filters more people to that area? I get it. So they're less isolated from other parts of the organization. Exactly. Got it. Um, But then the other thing that we do quite intentionally is, you know, you'll have a cluster of desks, but we'll plan kind of a leaning place to lean near those desks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you come in, you see a person you need to talk to, and you'll have kind of that leaning post. And they'll come up and come towards that leaning post. And then if a third person comes along, you know, you've created this little destination. Got it. And in addition to that, in adjacency to all these spaces, we always have these communal tables where we find more that the leaders sit. So, you know, if I'm walking by and I'll see our our director of uh, marketing sitting there, I might actually sit down next to him and be like, hey, I wanted to chat with you about this thing. And then again, that becomes this conversational destination, which is a great opportunity for learning. Right. I get it. So Heather also talks about this idea of collective intelligence, which I also found really intriguing because, uh, you know, a lot of us as, you know, we became leaders earlier in our careers, you know, there was always this notion that the leader is supposed to have all of this expertise. The leader is supposed to know it all. And yet what Heather talks about is like, that's just impossible and that you really have to be a little bit more vulnerable and, you know, acknowledge that the the collective wisdom of the team is what's going to be really important to continuing to, you know, kind of move any work forward. And so I'm just curious, like, it sounds like this idea that you're talking about ties to this idea of of how a physical environment could help build this collective uh, intelligence that Heather was talking about. What do you think? So I think what I was just mentioning is kind of one, certainly one aspect of that, you know, bringing a lot of voices to the table um, in a kind of more casual way. And then another thing that we do is when we plan spaces for people to come together um, we really plan those spaces in a way that gives everyone an equal seat at the table. So, you know, there won't be a head of the table or someone who controls the technology in a way that then monopolizes the meeting. And we find that that's really helpful, especially when, when you're trying to get through hierarchy. So, you know, if you've got mm-hmm. a director in a meeting together with a younger person, if they want to speak up, then their voice is equally heard. So I would say in mm-hmm. Steelcase, generally, if someone has at value to add in a meeting, the space will support them in speaking up or being an e- equally heard to all the others in that space. Yeah, it's interesting how space can communicate that hierarchy. Like, you know, who is the person who's in charge and uh, it's it, it's really interesting to think about how you design a space that doesn't have all of those symbols about hierarchy that tell you to, you know, be quiet and you know, kind of sit in the background and you know, let the let the boss talk, but rather create this much more again kind of communal environment where everybody is invited. Um, 
I think that's a really interesting concept. Thanks again, Noga. We could talk about this forever, but I think you've given us some really interesting ideas to think about. So thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. It was good being here, Chris. Thank you for being here with us. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please rate or review it so more people can find it and visit us at steelcase.com research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research insights and design ideas delivered to your inbox. So Rebecca, what's up for next week? Next week, we're talking to Robin Dunbar. Mm -hmm. You may have heard of Robin. He's famous for something called the Dunbar number, which is how many relationships our brain can manage. Amazing. I know. We're going to explore how relationships are changing in this era of work and what we need to know to make work more enjoyable. We hope everyone will join us for that conversation. Thanks again for being here. We hope your day of work tomorrow is just a little bit better. Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better podcasts possible. Our creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison, editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios, technical support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez, and our digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.